wanted to say something about uh, people. People are are stressing about possible paper topics. Actually, could you get the door? It's thank you, Gabby. People are stressing about possible paper topics, so you shouldn't. I mentioned before that I actually really hate giving written paper topics because students kind of take them as questions that they're supposed to figure out, like what is it that this, what is the secret behind this? Whereas what I would really like you to do is write about what's interesting to you, and that's why I why I don't like giving paper topics at all, but since some people do seem a little bit stressed out about it, I'm going to give you some topics in the real sense of topic, which is something to write about rather than a question to answer. In other words, you have to come up with an interesting answer to a therefore interesting question, an answer that makes a question interesting. And the so what I was thinking of doing, we're going to talk today a little bit more about Mandible, and I hope you guys printed out what I sent on Latte. We'll talk a little bit more about Mandible and about Adam Smith and about Kant and ideas of the useful, of use value and its relation to the desirable and to the beautiful. And that's something that has been of interest to people for a long time. So one of the things that Marx talks about is what he calls commodity fetishism. And commodity fetishism is an interesting topic and one that you could write about. And what you could think about if you write about commodity fetishism is the relationship, again, which is the heart of this course in one way or another, the relationship uh, in this course of valuing objects and valuing things that are fictional. Fictional characters, fictional situations, being concerned about things that in some deep way are not real. So the very idea of fetishism is an ideal of idolatry, of personalizing, of making into a person, into something which has intentions, which has powers, which has the kind of power that a god or a human being would have doing that to commodities. So that's what Marx is talking about in commodity fetishism. And you could, therefore, if you want, talk about the relationship of commodity fetishism to fiction or to works of the imagination. That's one possibility. Another possibility is just to talk about some work of literature where the question of the relationship of use and exchange value becomes an interesting one beyond its interestingness as a fact in economic history or a fact in the way ec economies work and the way that money works. So one thing you could do, even though we didn't do it in class and therefore it might be an ideal thing to do, is actually write a paper on Timon and talk about how some of the themes in this class work out in that Shakespeare play, Timon of Athens. Another thing you can do is I'm going to send you, Gabby, I'm sorry, could you get the door again? It's not your fault. It's latecomers' fault. Um, another thing that you could do is I'm going to send out a couple of interesting things. One is a short story by Mark Twain. It's not that short, but it's not that long. It's, it's maybe a... Uh, yes, Close the door. Good. Um, uh, it's a lot. It's a lot shorter than Time of Athens. Called the One Million Pound Bank Banknote. Does anyone know it? So it's a good story. It's about a million pounds is like a lot of money back then. It's 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 um, Doctor Evil kind kinds of money. Anyhow, one million pound banknote. And the interesting thing that uh, the interesting way that it functions. So. Again, you could read that story and talk about the ideas and themes and issues in this class and how that story speaks to them, maybe complicates them, maybe gives you new insights into them, maybe makes you think about them differently. So I will send a link to that story, the million pound banknote. The, I think the link that I'm going to send, all the, all the links that I've found so far have like discussion 
questions at the end, which will just be misleading to you, except I found one which seems to be for students learning English. So it has footnotes which explain certain hard words, and so you can ignore those. Just read the story itself. The other thing that I'm going to send you is a um, image of a work of art by Marcel Duchamp. And what it is, is the background of this, I'll just tell you, is that Duchamp went to the dentist and couldn't afford to pay. Do people know who Marcel Duchamp is? Is this a, who is, who is he? Uh, he was an artist in modern, yeah. through modernism times. Yeah. And I only know about the toilet. Yes. Yeah, so, okay, good. So as everyone, what? Here's a toilet, like the Dada toilet. Yes. <laughs> you love the trail. Now that is some great work of art. The other thing that every, that the second thing that people would know after they know about the toilet. So does everyone know about the toilet, the urinal? Uh, someone describe it. What what happens? Uh, he submitted to a museum. I think. Yeah. He was calling for works of art. He just found a urinal on the street, and he wrote something on it. No, you're. No. I think you're confusing it with a different thing where he okay. did write something. So, and he just gave the urinal to the museum saying, this is my work of art. Yeah. And it was like a commentary on how these, how people and institutions place value on Good. art. Good. Your paper's half written. Right there. Your paper's half written. Good. All right. So he's, he's, I actually think he's most famous for his, another work of art of his, which is Mona Lisa with a mustache and a beard drawn in the way, uh, the way you would do in a subway station on a poster. So this was actually a playing card that had a picture of Mona Lisa on the back. I think it was, you know, it was, it was a souvenir playing card with Mona Lisa on the back of each <coughs> card. And so he scampishly um, just drew in a mustache and beard and wrote on the bottom the letters in English, they are L-H-O-O-Q, which if you pronounce in the French way, can anyone do it? Well, I can't, but I know what it translates to. Which is? It's like he has a hot ass. Yeah, hot as in uncomfortable, not hot as in desirable. So it's L-A-C-H-O-O-Q, that is um, her ass is burning. And that's, the, that's why she looks that way. She had too many jalapenos the night before. And so she looks that way, the way Da Vinci's Mona Lisa looks. And, um, but she also has a beard and mustache drawn in by Marcel Duchamp. The other thing people don't know about Marcel Duchamp was he was actually a friend of Samuel Beckett's, who the, the great 20th century writer, Nobel Prize winner, one of the three or four great writers in English of the 20th century, although he wrote half his work in French. He translated his own work into English. And he and Beckett used to spend a whole lot of time playing chess. Duchamp was, um, I believe, an international master. He was certainly a master, but I believe he was the equivalent of what's now called an international master, which means not grandmaster level, but plays in tournaments with grandmasters. So the things he devoted himself to were chess and art. And, or art, he had lots of time for chess, given that art. And he and Beckett worked out an amazing chess game in a novel of Beckett's. Beckett's first novel is, <coughs> excuse me, a novel called Murphy. Remember, the, we started with Beckett, the, the four knocks, one, yes, two, no, three, money, four, goodbye. No, one, yes, two, no, three, I don't know, four, money, five, goodbye. And the only thing that the Beckett character is concerned about is that his mother should, should associate four knocks with money. The other things, that's just communication. But money, that's what he needs her to know. So Beckett's first novel is a novel called Murphy. And in it, there's a chess game between the title character, Murphy, and a person who seems completely oblivious of Murphy's existence. And yet they play a game of chess. And the chess game is one 
in which the other player plays obliviously of what Murphy is doing. If any one of you, if any of you uh, play chess, you know that a standard opening move is what we now call e4, but at the time was pawn to king four, and it was that was Bobby Fischer's favorite move. He all but a handful of games until he played the World Championship, he would always play pawn to king four. And it's no longer regarded as the best first move, but it was regarded as the best first move until at least the 1970s. And actually maybe until the Fischer-Spassky World Championship where Spassky and Fischer both found really interesting responses to it. So in this novel in the 1930s, there's a chess game which is annotated. You get the whole game. And the first move is Murphy plays pawn to king four, or as we now say, e4. And the annotator says, a blunder and the source of all of White's subsequent difficulties. And the game is really, really interesting if you play it out because Murphy resigns at just the moment when he actually finally had a good move. And it turns out that Beckett and Duchamp figured that game out together, that Beckett wanted this game to do a certain thing, and Duchamp uh, figured out how to do it. So that's another thing that he does in the history of art. At any rate, he in, I'm going to see if I can get the date from this image, but in the early 20th century, he was living in the U.S. Yeah, 1919, and in Paris. No, 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 he sent it from Paris. So he was living in the U.S., he had to go to the dentist, he had no money. And so he sent a painting of a check to the dentist for the amount of money, which was $115, that he owed the dentist. And the painting of the check is something that you could think about and write about. Is the painting of a check, is that forgery? Is that a way of getting out of the debt that he owes? Just think about from the point of view of use value, of exchange value, and of some of the things we're going to talk about uh, today and Monday in, is Monday the official day of the midterm? I think yes. it is. Um, but I think given the snow day, we'll put it off till next Wednesday. So today and Monday about Smith and uh, Mandeville, Smith and Kant. Uh, think about the check in those terms. If you don't do the paper now, you can, just as long as you hand in what you need to hand in by the end of the semester, there are no particular due dates before that. You can also wait for some of the later things that we're going to read. But if you're anxious to do a paper sooner rather than later, if you want to distribute your work over the semester in such a way that you don't have to do it all at the end of the semester, then these are, these are possibilities. But just write about something interesting, that relevant and interesting. It has to be both relevant and interesting. Interesting without relevance, no. Relevance without interest, no. So write about something both relevant and interesting. So, and if you have ideas and you want to, you want to um, uh, put, float them by me, that's fine. Questions, comments? All right. Let us look at um, the one more thing from. This, as I say, I hope you printed this out from Mandeville. And this is a place where he is dealing with the difficulty. So this is, we looked yesterday and read through what he had to say about the virtues of the vices. That is, the, what, what vanity and envy make possible. Then here, a little bit later, is the, he writes the couplet. This is part of the poem. The soldiers that were forced to fight, if they survived, got honor bite. That's how it would have been pronounced at the time. Um, that is by it. But you see the apostrophe. So the soldiers that were forced to fight, if they survived, got honor by it. Bite. And why does he have to have a note to this? I mean, he has to have a note to everything. That's part of the point is that he's writing this work of uh, this polemic of, of political economy, of how economy should work, how society should be set up, the, the kind of, he's maybe, uh, I don't know if you'd call him the Jordan Peterson of his time or the anti-Jordan Peterson of his time, but he is in some sort of relationship like that. If he is writing this polemic, and 
is arguing that essentially selfishness is good, which is the Ayn Rand point of view. You guys all know that Rand Paul is named after Ayn Rand? Yes, he really is. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. He's named after Ayn Rand because his father, Ron Paul, liked Ayn Rand so much. What? It makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know that um, Alan Greenspan was Ayn Rand's executor? So Alan Greenspan was head of the Federal Reserve until like 2004, and um, he loved Ayn Rand. He was he was her protege when he was a young man, and he then became her executor after she died. So anyhow, Mandeville is you should name a child Mandeville. See what happens. Um, Mandeville is a little bit the Ayn Rand of his time, at least in the sense that he's making the argument, the Gordon Gecko argument, what's Gordon Gecko's famous line people know from Wall Street? Greed is good, yeah. So that's Ayn Rand's saying selfishness is good, that selfishness is what builds worlds and um, improves the lot of society and makes things great. So Mandeville is, is pretty much the first person to make this provocative argument since it goes against everything that is taught um, in morality, that the love of money is the root of all evil and so on. Here, the argument is the love of money is the root of all good, is the root of all improvement, is the root of all worldly possibility. It's what gets rid of poverty, what, what induces people to industry, to use the word that we were focusing on yesterday. And so this is true of the soldiers too, he says. So soldiers were forced to fight, This is, but if they survived, they got honor by it. So even fighting leads to something good, which is honor. And you would think it's a bad thing, we're pro-peace, we're anti-war, but it turns out that, you know, there's, there's a little bit of bitterness there, but it also turns out that there is a, an upside you can be elected to the Senate. You can be made president of the United States. At least that's the way it used to be, that war heroes did very well in politics. And they still do. There are some people who dodge the draft because of bone spurs and things like that who still do well. But on the whole, it's, it is very much credential if you are looking for um, praise and um, if, you're looking, if you're looking for a reward. And... Mandeville maybe has a little problem here, which is what? Why does he have to write a footnote to this? If they survived, they got honor by it. What is the issue that the question of honor might bring up in, well, I think it's actually a very relevant issue now. What is the issue that the, that the question of honor might bring up in an economic theory which says that greed is good. Oh, no. Well, just my get thing is that they're making a, it's a very real risk. Uh, with like, you know, so you know, so, and it's a very high probability that you won't get, you'll just die and not get honored by it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so it doesn't seem that if you were rationally calculating the odds, you would go for a career in the military. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know, it just doesn't, see, although there are high rewards, it's a, it seems either you're assuming that the person is very irrational, or, yeah. that, or, you know, or that maybe there's something more than um, selfishness. Well, um, okay, why is it irrational? Why isn't, why isn't it worth the um, the risk of death for the payoff. I mean, there are lot, lots of things people do at the risk of death. Most jobs have some risk of death associated with them. Some of you probably know, and I, or I hope you know, that being a sanitation worker means that you have twice the risk of on-the-job death that you would if you were a police officer. So people who are sanitation workers, they're, you know, th th these days it's not a gigantic risk of death, but it's a risk of death. 
Um, and what do they get for it? Well, they get paid. The higher the risk job in general, the more the pay, or it should be. In fact, it's not actually true, as we know. But that would be the theory, that if you go into a high-risk job, you should be compensated for that, which means you're risking death or risking injury, but getting compensation for the possibility that you will die, for the risk that you're taking. Um, so why doesn't that work here? That is, they're doing this job, and... Um, they're getting paid for it. Yeah? There's um, a specific reward for survival specified. So it seems to, I don't know, devalue the idea of the risk. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to take the risk because by as much because by surviving you'll get honor. Mm -hmm. So the monetary compensation seems a little less important there. Because honor, what's honor worth? That is, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the, the very question, what honor is worth, is an interesting one, because honor, does it have use value? To some extent, it does, right? That is, you get to feel good about yourself, and people get to treat you as an honorable man. So are they all, all honorable men? What's that? For Brutus is an honorable man, so are they all all honorable men? No? Caesar. Caesar it, it, yeah, it's Mark Antony on the death of Caesar. Um, it's the Friends Romans Countryman speech in Shakespeare. Here's another moment. This is Falstaff um, in who, who is a coward and who runs away from battles. Um, he doesn't fight them at all. He sees a battle and he immediately goes in the opposite direction. Do you guys know who Dr. Smith is on Lost in Space? You know about the robot? Danger, Will Robinson? This is not, you must have heard that phrase because it's a meme. Do you know what it's from? Does Dr. Smith have like a thing with spiders? He has a thing with everything. Okay, well, all I, for some reason, all that popped into my head was spiders. He's, he's frightened of them. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, at any rate, Falstaff is the Dr. Smith of Shakespeare. So you heard it here. If you, if you tell it to people in your parents' generation and they know both Shakespeare and Lost in Space, they will laugh. So Falstaff runs away. And here, I'll, I'll just read this. Uh, Prince Henry, who is his friend but who has contempt, who enjoys but also has contempt for Falstaff's cowardliness, says, you shouldn't be a coward. They're about to have a battle. And Henry says, why thou owest God a death. And the way the word death was pronounced at the time in the late 16th century was debt. That is, the TH wasn't, the difference between T and TH wasn't as pronounced as it is now. Um, so it's thou owest God a debt would be a little bit closer. And so what's the pun there? Death, death and debt, yeah. So life is, being alive is being in debt. Um, and we pay that debt by debt, by death. So Falstaff is then left alone. Hal has, is, is kind of pissed off. Henry, is, the prince, is pretty pissed off at him for being so cowardly in a time of great danger. And Falstaff says to himself, well, I may owe him a debt. I may owe God a death or a debt, but tis not due yet. I would be loath to pay him before his day. So I may owe God this debt, but I, I don't have to pay it right now. I have, I have the, the due date is later. Why would I pay it early? What need I be so forward with him that calls not on me? So God isn't saying, hey, where's that death you owe me? Well, tis no matter. Honor pricks me on. So I should do it out of honor. Honor pricks me on. Yay. But how if honor prick me off when I come on? That is, so honor is, is spurring me on, but what if honor then picks me off and kills me? How then? Can honor set to a leg? So can honor, does honor have the use value of setting a broken leg? No. Or an arm? No. Or take away the grief of a wound? No. Honor hath no skill in surgery then? No. What is honor? A word. 
What is in that word honor? What is that honor? Air. A trim reckoning. That is, it's a very, very low payback. Um, this is reckoning like when you get the reckoning for a bill. Reckoning means bill. Um, who hath it? That is, who has honor? He that died on Wednesday. Doth he feel it? No. Doth he hear it? No. Tis insensible then. Yea, to the dead. So the dead don't know that they have honor. Tis insensible then. Yea, to the dead. But will it not live with the living? So, all right, so you get honor and you're alive, or you may die, but those that honor, but those who, who survive will honor you for giving your life, give, making the highest sacrifice, will give you their thoughts and prayers and, and so on. So, but will it not live with the living, he asks. What do you think his answer is? This is not a pro-honor speech. So will it not live with the living? No. Why? Detraction will not suffer it. So anyone who's honored, everyone else says, oh, they're not so great. I like people who are not captured, to quote. I forget who said that about John McCain. Um, so detraction will not suffer it. Therefore, I'll none of it. I'm not going to do anything for the sake of honor. Honor is a mere scutcheon. And so ends my catechism. That is, it's just a symbol of no actual value. So honor is a breath. It's meaningless. It's just a word is what Falstaff is saying. So that seems to be the question that Mandeville, in, in the poem, what he's saying is soldiers fight for honor. Let's, let's summarize it that way. That is, that it's not self-sacrificing the way it might seem because, in fact, they get a payback for the fighting that they do, which is honor. And that is a problem for Mandeville because it doesn't look like that payback is nearly worth the, the risk that you take and the possibility of death or the actual death that you experience in order to get the payback of honor. Who has it? He that died on Wednesday. That's, that's a typical Shakespearean moment where you have honor. And then you have, yeah, that guy died Wednesday. It, like, it's just totally local. It's just like, yeah, it's just something that happened, that happened last Wednesday. Not some day of the week, but a particular day. You know, every day stuff happens. Wednesday, this guy died. Oh, he has honor. That's good. Let's go on. And so Falstaff's point is that honor is not worth it. And Mandeville is trying to make the claim that honor is worth it, and so that if people fight for honor, that's a kind of selfishness, but it's a good selfishness because it means that soldiers will defend the country. The, the desire for honor is selfish, but it's selfishness that helps the entire hive in this case. So that's Mandeville's argument. Does that make sense? Um, does it seem true to some extent, let's say in American society now? But to some extent, it's a clue. Let me teach you about being a student. If a professor says, does X seem true? To some extent, the answer is yes. Yeah. OK, good. Yes, yes, yes. That's great. How? I mean, being in the military confers some sort of like social status. Yeah, thank you for your service. Yeah, that kind of thing. You get to board the airplane first. Okay, so it confers social status, but <laughs> military discounts. You guys are, yeah, you're thinking very, very utilitarianly. Um, what else? What's, what's military culture? Honor-based. Yeah. What's the honor code? It's honor-based. If you have a school, which Brandeis is not one, but if you have a school um, based on the honor code, what is the honor code? Does anyone know? It's essential sentence. A cadet will not lie, cheat, or steal, nor tolerate anyone who does. So the honor code in West Point and in schools with an honor code, I believe Princeton has an honor code. Um, I think it did the semester that I taught there. Well, at any rate, schools with honor codes, um, you can do the exam wherever, whenever. 
so you give the you give a student the exam and you and it's not it's not proctored exams which are given at a particular time are not proctored and um, lots of exams are just given not as take homes it's pick up the exam and return it in two hours uh, you can do it you know figure out the two hours you want to do it and then pick up the exam and return it in two hours so they're not take home exams they're just exams in which no one is making sure you're not cheating. And the reason is the honor code. And what you do is you sign on the blue books there. They, you, you were actually signing that you pledged your honor that you didn't cheat on the exam. So you're pledging your honor. Why wouldn't a lot of people think, honor, what's that? A breath. I pledge my honor. So what? What's the idea behind the honor code? Why should it work? What's the theory that would make it work? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, for one thing, there's, if you lie, you could probably get expelled and lose some yeah. actual material, not material, but like marked, visible thing. But also, being <coughs> perceived as honorable has its own merits in that you are... If you are trustworthy, people will trust you. Mm -hmm. And it is a, it makes social interactions easier and weighs them in your favor more if you are perceived by others <coughs> as honorable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So, it, so again, you're giving um, the cynical view. But the cynical view can be true or it can be on a continuum with a description which is not cynical. If you pledge your honor and you cheat, one theory is going to be, even if you don't get caught, and even if people do think you're honorable, why would, let's say you're told that you can get away with it. That is, that God comes to you and says, I'm not even going to look. <laughs> I'm not even going to see what you're going to do. Um, but I just want you to know you can get away with it. And Or let's just say the authorities tell you you can get away with it. The whole point about the honor code is no one will ever accuse you, no matter what the evidence. So, it, so at a school like West Point, if you are caught violating the honor code, and that's the nor tolerate anyone who does part of the honor code, if you're caught violating it, the consequences are severe. But let's say that you had an honor code, which I think in theory you can have, which is no evidence that you violated the honor code will count. Because if you say you haven't violated it, then we will believe you over the videotapes showing you violating it. And we won't even look at those tapes. If someone says, look, I have photographic proof that he violated the honor code, we won't look. Because if you say you didn't, your word is good enough for us. This happened at the in the 1930s, very famously. I think it was in the 1930s uh, that some, I think it was the Poles had decoded some German communications and told the English military leaders that they were able to break German codes and see what the Germans were doing. And the British military leaders refused to read the German secret communications, and the famous line is, gentlemen don't read each other's mail. So it's basically, they might be cheating, but we're gentlemen and we don't read their mail. So that would be worse. So what then would might induce someone to be honorable, even if they knew that no cheating would ever, no one would ever believe that they cheated or accuse them of cheating if they denied that they did. <laughs> Can you imagine an honor code like that? I love that. Do you think it would just be an abject failure or can you imagine some way that it could be successful? I believe there are some people who would follow it, but I don't think that most people would follow it. Would you? Uh, probably. I'd feel really bad, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. I There would be a certain level of internal guilt 
mm-hmm. that would cause me to avoid breaking it. Okay, yeah. So how many people think, it's not, so there are two ways that I can ask this question, or there are two, two things this question can mean. One <laughs> is, would you, as in, do you predict that you would follow it? And I think we could all say no. That is, we all know that if we actually predict what we're going to do in the future, we're not going to keep our New Year's resolutions, and there's all sorts of stuff that we can predict of ourselves, because we know what we're like. And, and, and that's just, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but we know what we're like. So that's one meaning of the word would. But the other is the, the meaning, it's a, it's a related meaning, but not quite the same, which is would you, as in would that be your intention to do it? So if at the start of things you went to a school that said, our honor code is we believe you no matter what, um, would you then believe, would you then commit yourself even though nothing would happen if you broke your own commitment? Would you commit yourself to that honor code? Would you say, that's a cool thing, and given the fact that it's all on me, I'm committing myself to that code? I feel like most of us would, right? Anyone wouldn't? It's not, would you actually manage to fulfill your commitment? It's, would you be inspired by that commitment to do it, to commit yourself to it? Like, I'm sure I would cheat if push came to shove, but I also feel like I would commit myself to that code. And I think probably you're saying something similar. And I think probably most people feel that way. Is there anyone who wouldn't commit themselves to that code? Wouldn't you think it's kind of cool? That would be a perversely honest person, right? because there is a kind of desire not to. You mean a perversely honest person would admit that they wouldn't commit? Yes. Yeah, okay, I know, I know. That's, but that's part of the point. But I think, okay, just look in your heart and see whether you would commit yourself to that code. And I think most of you would think that you would. Um, it's not that most of you would predict that you would honor your own commitment, but I think most of you would think that you would commit yourself to that code. Um, do you guys use like Scrabble cheat when you play Scrabble on the internet? Doesn't that just feel wrong? That's what my friend keeps being. Oh, <laughs> She's so good at it. Mm. I'm after her. I didn't know that existed. Are you kidding? She's like. Just Google Scrabble cheat or Lexilis cheat. I'm like, I should be better at Scrabble. No there. wonder. It's the business major part that explains like both parts. Like, you don't know what a Zephyr is. Yeah, yeah really. Yeah. <laughs> it used to be Scrabble with friends. Now it's just Scrabble. Yeah, because they're no longer friends. <laughs> Scrabble with friends? We don't think so. Scrabble, what that means? What are you going to say? Uh, I was going to say, doesn't your question at the end, they just come down to people are intrinsically bitter about if you want to commit to something that, if you believe everyone, most people would be willing to commit, and it's intrinsically regret. <coughs> yeah. We have good intentions. Yeah. But if you don't believe people have good intentions, intrinsically, then you wouldn't commit to something. Yeah, but so I think it's that's the difference between like getting to college and leaving college. Is it's when you get here, it's all going to be amazing, and you believe that everyone has good intentions, and then things erode. But the. Nevertheless, I think it's an interesting fact that most people do have good intentions and th- that, that cheating is always situational. That is, that something happens which makes it impossible. For most people, it makes it impossible for them to fulfill their good intentions. There are some people, I don't want to mention any presidents, but there are some people who clearly have no conscience whatever about cheating. But I think on the whole, their pangs, when people do cheat, they do it with some pang of conscience. And they may feel good about themselves for having that pang of conscience, and that may well compensate for the bad thing that they're doing. Well, I'm doing this, and I hate myself, so it's okay. <laughs> I think a lot of people feel that way. Yeah? Um, I think a lot of people would um, be inspired to honor, to, to like commit themselves to the honor code, just like solely because of, like, um, saying that they'll, you'll, you'll be believed no matter what sort of takes away, like, you know, surrounding mm-hmm. breaking it. Because I think um, a lot of what, what has to do with the concept of honor is like the consequences to you will always be more um, more concrete than like any potential benefit you might you know, earn from 
being an honorable person. I yeah. think honor is like sort of like Bitcoin in a way. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And and right, because it's also kept track of. It, it it's hard to mine and it's kept track of by others. But yeah, Andrew. I think there's also like kind of a prisoner dilemma component to it where like if you go to the school and they like so boast that this is their honor code and you go you find out that everyone cheats. Yeah. And like they're probably gonna cheat too because like Oh absolutely. Yeah. But like yeah. if no one does then you don't want to be the one that like messes it up and yeah. you get caught and then the whole system comes tumbling down. But yeah. No, that's true. That that is that there's a, there there can be the huge disappointment of finding out that everyone cheats and that therefore no one is honoring honor and there that it therefore becomes pointless. But at any rate, what I think you guys are describing is the question of whether there can be a selfish reason for acting honorably. That is is honor itself a is the reputation of being honorable, not the use of that reputation, which is that people will take your checks and you can skip out. You can you can establish yourself as an honorable person, and you know it's what the, it's what Madoff did, for example. You guys all know about Madoff. Um, so Madoff was just giving these amazing returns, and he kept it up for like twenty years, and people thought of him as this just really, really good and reliable and trustworthy person to invest your money. Oh, was that the Ponzi scheme? That yeah. Was yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, but he kept it going for a really long time, and his reputation as someone who was completely above board is what enabled him to keep it going. So that's a way of monetizing honor, is that the more, honor, the more your reputation is to be honorable, the more you can get away with cheating. But let's just say that, that the question is, does honor itself as a truth about you rather than as a reputation, but as something that's true about you, is, does it have value? And from, from Mandeville's selfish point of view, it seems like it shouldn't. That is, that what has value is acting, is self-dealing because that helps society. Does honor, however, does that have the kind of value that vanity and envy and so on aim at? And it seems that it doesn't. But here he's trying to say, OK, why do people fight? They fight for honor. So that explains that fighting occurs, that, that people fight because they're selfish. And the question is, if you're fighting for honor, and if that really is your motive, not for what honor can get you, but just for honor, can that be regarded as selfishness? So Mandeville is saying, yes, it can. But from his own point of view, it feels like it shouldn't because honor has no value in itself except itself. It has to be, I mean, I think this is what you were saying, Andrea, as well. It has to be valued to be valued. It's, it, gold doesn't have to be valued by the possessor to be valued by others. But honor has to be valued to be valued. If people don't care about honor, then it has no value. Because it's not that it has to be valued to be exchangeable. You can't exchange honor. It has to be valued to have use value. Maybe that's a way of putting it. That gold has to be valued to have exchange value. But honor can't have exchange value. You can't say to someone, hey, you can have my honor if you give me $50, and then you can go around, and everyone will honor you instead of me. Um, honor has no exchange value. It only has use value. So it has to be valued to have use value. And that seems a little bit of a contradiction to what Mandeville is saying. So he has a note on this. The man of manners, he says, this is part of a very long note, so this, this comes right in the middle. The man of manners, that is a person who has good table manners, who's polite. The man of manners picks not the best, but rather takes the worst out of the dish. So why, what does that have to do with honor? That someone offers you um, three slices, of, gives you the, the dish of cake, and you take the crumbly slice. What does that have to do with honor? Yeah. Because you don't want to take the best part for yourself. Yeah, you don't want to look greedy. 
So it would be you, you would dishonor yourself or you would show yourself to be a jerk if you look greedy and you don't want to look that way. So the man of manners takes not the best but rather takes the worst out of the dish and gets of everything, unless it be forced upon him, always the most indifferent share. So um, it's always good manners to take the smallest, the least um, interesting, to leave the, the good um, parts for other people. So... Um, always takes the most indifferent share. By this civility, the best remains for others, which being a compliment to all that are present, everybody is pleased with it. So here he's um, getting cynical. Let's call his view a cynical one, that if you take, you know, someone offers you, there's, there's the pizzas on the table in front of you and you take the smallest piece. You get to take the first piece, and or you're serving the pizza out, so obviously you give the biggest pieces to other people and you take the smallest piece for yourself. And then Mandelville says, okay, so cynically, everyone else is going to be happy that you were the one serving the pizza because they get the largest piece, right? So is that your experience of <laughs> pizza, that you would rather have someone else give you the pizza or are your friends jerks? Do you want to be the one handing out the pizza or do you want your friends to be the one handing out the pizza? Do you guys not eat pizza? <laughs> yeah. But when you know you can play the game slightly differently. There's a humility in coming out as the greedy. I know, but the, the, there is, but I don't think there is. But you only do that with really good friends. So no, no, you take the first slide. No, you take it. So Mandeville's point is when you're always offering the other person the first choice, that's because you know that they're not going to take the best. If they have the first choice, it would be bad manners in them to take the best, right? Would you take the best if someone keeps pushing the first well, choice on you? the logic of the gift. Yeah. Wouldn't it be rude not to take yeah. the best slice? Yeah, but that's if they're offering it to you. Or do you mean the potlatch logic? So the logic of the gift, you're absolutely right to bring the logic of the gift in here because the idea is my gift to you is you get to pick the slice of pizza that you want. And, in fact, no, my gift to you is I'm giving you the largest slice. So if you're the one who's putting the pizza on the plate, you give the other person the largest slice, and that's the gift. That is the logic of the gift. And doing that means that you are showing yourself to be generous, but you are also pleasing the other person because, yay, they get the biggest slice, and they're happy about that. And you are glad that they're grateful. So that's what he's saying, that everyone is well-pleased. So you have bought their gratitude by giving them the largest slice. Next time you share stuff with someone at a restaurant or somewhere, just notice this dynamic um, at a party or a restaurant or, or wherever you're sharing things. Just notice this dynamic. The more they love themselves, the more they are forced to approve of his behavior. So they're glad to get the largest slice. Why? Because they love themselves. And gratitude stepping in, they are obliged almost, whether they will or not, to think favorably of him. So you buy their gratitude, and that's the logic of the gift. You buy their gratitude by giving them the biggest slice. After this manner it is that the well-bred man insinuates himself in the esteem of all the companies he comes in, and if he gets nothing else by it, the pleasure he receives in reflecting on the applause which he knows is secretly given him is to a proud man more than an equivalent for his former self-denial and overpays to self-love with interest the loss it sustained in his complacence, that is, in his giving pleasure. That's what complacence spelt this way means. The loss it sustained in his complacence to others. So the idea there is I give you the larger piece of pizza and I know that you think that I am a cool person and that makes me proud and that more than makes up for the fact that I have so much less pizza. And do you think that's true? That's a cynical description. It might be a true cynical description. It's a cynical description. Do you think it's true? If it is true, 
this is something to think about. If it is true, then what you have to say is that somehow pride, secret pride, being proud of yourself for other people admiring you for your self-sacrifice has <coughs> to actually be worth more than pizza to you. And then the question is, how could it be? Pizza's pizza. Pride is just this internal feeling that maybe it's worth more to you, but if it is worth more to you, this is like, this. maybe we're getting back to Mother Teresa here. If it's worth more to you, then what's worth more to you is something that isn't worth very much. It's worth it to you to prefer something that's worth less to something that's worth more. Do you see the paradox there? That if what you get is pride rather than pizza, the two Ps, if you get pride rather than pizza, pride is worth less than pizza, but you're proud of the fact that you're preferring pride to pizza. So it's worth more to you to take what's worth less than what's worth more. And that's a, that's a strange and interesting paradox about, from Mandeville's point of view at any rate. And it's something that Smith will pick up on. Okay, we'll talk about Smith on Monday. So read. No midterm on Monday. Um, it'll be on Wednesday. Read the Smith and the Kant for Monday, though. If you haven't read it, read it. If you have read it, reread it. Pledge your sacred honor that you will do those things. Good. Yeah. And, you know, it's actually you think of those camps and that's already there in, in a hot like, yeah. so, you know, like, so there's clearly a modern feeling. Yeah. Uh, that, that it's that there's self because it's all about how to be happy. Yeah. Yeah, and then the question is the question is whether the answer to the question how to be happy um, it all depends on 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 what you have to do to be happy, and therefore on the nature of happiness. And if, ha if you're happy because you're altruistic, then it becomes harder to call that ultimately selfish, because if you're the kind of person who finds happiness in altruism, that's a good fact about you, not a bad fact. And I always find that fun because if you like, you read the content of Platonic, and I, or like just if you think about the Republic, it's all about how justice is yeah. great both yeah. for its consequences and in itself. Are you, Lipe, are you waiting for me? Yeah. Okay. So I'll just say. All right. See you on uh, Monday. Okay.